Not adults, kids may go. <laughs> adults may stay. Kids may stay too. You don't have to go. Just because there's class, that's up to the parents. So you guys are welcome to stay in here too. Uh, for the rest of you, uh, open your Bibles to Matthew 18. I know that you have them because you're in church. So why wouldn't you? Matthew 18. We have been moving through the book of Matthew. We are continuing to move through the book of Matthew. We've actually gone at a pretty good pace. I mean, some of you haven't been here for a long time. Those of you that have been at the door for a long time, I mean, it's, it's not unusual for us to take, you know, three years to go through a book. I think we've been maybe, maybe a year. We're over halfway there. That's, that's pretty good. However, however, today we're only going to pull off three verses. And I think as soon as I read it, you'll know why. Verse 7, 8, and 9. Matthew 18. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. You're welcome. Good morning. Thanks. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, my wife, me and my wife met at a young age, and we started dating at a young age, and um, she comes from a long line, generations of non-believers, and not only godless non-believers, but like Berkeley intellectuals, okay? So they're like the worst kind of atheists <laughs> that you can encounter, because they, they know everything, and um, they've got an argument for everything, right? And uh, so this is where my wife came from. She recalls the first ex church experience she ever had at the age of 15, where there was a girl from school that was a friend of hers that took her one night to youth group, to Bible study. Uh, it was a church called the Church of, church of the Valley. It's where all the cool kids went at the time, where we lived. Not the good kids, but just the cool kids. This is their youth group. And my wife went there, and the dude was teaching that night on this passage. This was her first experience in a church under the teaching of the Bible with these words. And you could tell that it raised her eyes and reinforced in some ways just how stupid and ridiculous we are for believing what we believe and reading what we read. However, on the other side of that, God actually did something, even through the ridiculousness of that verse to my wife that night, that piqued her interest enough that she went up and she went and talked to the dude afterward basically to put him in his place and tell him how dumb he was. But she was actually given something back in this text that would ever begin a, a chain of thought in a different direction towards God. So even texts like this can do something. Um, there are a few passages that record Jesus preaching something that truly induces fear, right? Um, this is undoubtedly one of them. 
Uh, there, there are many people, especially in reform circles, which I would say is my circle, that I probably run in theologically and doctrinally. I, I love those guys. I probably fall in line most with uh, a reformed uh, framework. Um, but there's a lot of people in reformed circles who criticize the idea that wanting to escape hell is a valid motive for coming to Jesus. And I very much disagree with that. It's almost like you don't sound spiritual enough if you have this, this ulterior motive other than you just love Jesus so much. I know that the only reason I love Jesus is because he loved me first. And I know that the way that he went about like um, exposing uh, his love to me is through things that I needed to be warned about. Like there's no way that you can look at the Bible, especially the teachings of Jesus, and come to the conclusion that he does not want us to be terrified of the reality that is ahead of you and I, if we do not know him. This is actually how I ended up getting saved. Some of you know the story. I was doing a little stretch of time for some stupid things back in the day, and uh, I basically was spending 22 hours out of the day by myself in a cell with a deck of cards and a Bible. And when I started reading that Bible, I started reading the book of Revelation because I thought that it was the only thing that was trippy enough because it had dragons and, you know, stuff like Lord of the Rings. And so, like, I'm reading the book of Revelation. As, I, as I'm reading it, right, innocently, I realize that I'm on the wrong side of God. And that, that began a thinking, a trajectory of thinking and examining that led me to the love of Christ, right? The reason Christ came, the reason the gospel exists. And so I believe that this is extremely valid is the point. And I believe this is one of those texts that we need to consider uh, as being valid. Like if, if you... If you um, are able on any level to comprehend the horrors of hell as the Bible unpacks it and not be bothered by it, like, you don't have a pulse. You know what I mean? Like, you should be, like, that's the point. All right. Um, I also want to recap real quick because sometimes the breaks in our modern-day Bibles, um, they're really there for helps. They're there to help us so that we can access things easier, we can reference things easier, we can find things easier. Um, However, there are times that they don't do us any favors because they cause us to think sometimes when we see a break that this is a whole different discourse. And what what we have today and what Chad preached last week is the same discourse. This is a direct run-on of what happened last week, which was this question that's given, like, like, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And, of course, Jesus brings a child to himself, and he's like, one of these. Unless you're as one of these, um, then you, basically, like, you, you have no place there. And then he talks about um, what happens uh, to someone who stumbles one of these, right? And, and it got, gets all mafia style with a millstone around the neck and, you know, all that good stuff. So um, anyway, this is, this is the same discourse, the same sitting, the same teaching. Okay? I want us to know that because we're, we're going to need it. All right? Verse 7. Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. The word woe. What does that mean? We don't we don't talk to each other that way. And it'd be weird if you did. If you came up to me and you were like, whoa, it That'd be weird. We're not horses, right? What does woe, like, woe mean? Like, it, it means grief. It means hardship. It means challenge, right? So, like, when we see woe in this context from Jesus, it's like grief to you, like troubled. Troubled are you. 
is what he's saying, right? Due to what? Due to temptation. Due to temptation existing. Due to temptation coming into the world and coming upon us, right? Due to temptation persisting and imposing itself on us. I don't know about you. I am exhausted sometimes. I am an exhausted Christian because of all the stuff that's trying to sell me a bill of goods. And it wouldn't be a problem if I didn't want them or think that there's something there to be had. That's the problem. We'll get into this a little bit, right? But it is a trouble. It is a woe to the world. It's a woe to you and I that this is a part of our lives that we have to live in, even as Christians, every single day. And so we have this thing called temptation, and that, that word in the Greek is skandalon, which sounds like scandal. It's where we get our word scandal or offense, right? And of course, there was a scandal that happened, let's just say 6,000 years ago. We can talk about it later, all right? In the garden with our first parents. That was a huge scandal. And that scandal has persisted and gone through, threaded down history to you and I. It's our scandal too, right? And it has to do with uh, temptation, Uh, The definition also for temptation is basically a stumbling block or a trap stick. And what a trap stick is, is if you were in the wilderness back in those days and you had a reed in the wilderness that was maybe bent over um, and you got your foot caught in it, like that's a trap stick, right? Like it's something that like trips you up or like catches you, okay? So that's what we're talking about. But if we were to give temptation a simple, straightforward, biblical definition, uh, it would sound like this. It is the enticement to sin or to evil. It's the enticement to sin or to evil. How many of you have temptation in your lives? A few honest people, good. I love that. I love not being the only person, all right? Uh, How many of you experience temptation even still on a daily basis many times? Doesn't matter what kind of level that is, right? We're challenged even still. Do you agree that temptation is a woe? Yeah, I I do too. It's a grief. It's a hardship. It's a problem. And so we would say, like, welcome to the human race, right? Like, welcome to the work of Adam, right? Um, And and even welcome to Christianity. Um, Because just because we become Christians does not mean that we skip through a field of flowers the rest of our lives, right? We don't just walk around in life with rainbows shooting out of our ears. You thought I was going to say something else. (laughs) Ears, right? And some people have this idea that that's just what we think or how some, I don't know, some of you are weird enough that you try to actually put yourself off that way. And, that, and that's odd. It's not true. Forgiven doesn't mean free from sinful challenge. It just doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean free from spiritual woe. Forgiven means forgiven. And praise God for that. Praise God that there is forgiveness, Right? We may be apt to think that because we've been born again, we don't ever think the way we used to. We don't ever desire the things that we used to desire or be drawn towards that which is evil. But this is not always true. And in those old man moments, the the sin challenges that we still encounter, we may be tempted to think, am I really saved? Why does this thing still appeal to me? Am I really saved? Am I, have I really been made new, right? Is there something wrong with me? I think this a lot, and the answer is yes. There is something wrong with you. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need Jesus every single day, is because of scandal, because there is something wrong with us. 
That's why he had to come. And so Jesus says, woe to the world, woe to us due to temptation in the world. And then he moves to a statement that speaks to the other side of woe with temptation, right? He says, woe to the person by whom or which the temptation comes. And so this kind of stinks because what this does is it takes it, it takes us from being tempted to being tempters, right? Uh, so we're, no, we're not just victims of temptation, we're actually victimizers with temptation in our own lives. So, so this woe is not just like an enticement from outside of us towards sin or evil, but an enticement from us toward someone else for sin and evil. Um, and like I said, this, this really stinks because it places us in the midst of the horrible statement that Jesus just previously made back in verse 6, the one that Chad preached on last week. Verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones, and again, I want to restate this real quick, little ones in this context is first and foremost literally young people, but it's also then correlated to believers, children of God, or people that are even new in the faith, vulnerable in, your, in, in the faith that are God's children. So it's both, but kids, like literally kids are, are also first and foremost being referred to by Jesus. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, uh, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So Again, here's the problem. Not only are we grieved due to temptation coming upon us, but we're also grieved due to temptation coming out of us, coming from us. Woe to us, because we are also the ones who have caused others to fall into sin and stumble. And you know what? I don't blame God for hating this so much. Like, the millstone thing is, like, heavy. But I don't blame him because I was a parent with young kids once. And any of you who are a parent with young kids, you know that when you see wolves come into their life, whether it's some kid from school or some kid from the soccer team, you see someone who's up to no good, who you know is going to be enticing your child into something that you don't want your child to be down with, like, I have a problem with that kid. I have a problem with that kid. It would be weird for us as parents if we did not care when we see danger looming at the door for our children. And this is what God is expressing here. Like, he cares how people treat his kids. And if you are one of them, you should take comfort in that. You should take comfort in the fact that God is a good, powerful, protective dad, right? And so I don't, I don't blame him one bit for this. Um, the real problem, though, is that as much as I hate this, and as much as I understand the ugliness of it, I'm guilty of it. And so are you. I am guilty of it, and so are you. We have done this. Even with my own kids, I can hardly ever stand to reflect sometimes on my parenting. You know, as a guy who knew Jesus and was a good Christian and went to Bible studies. And some of the stuff that I said, and some of the way that I said it, and some of the way that I parented, some of the things that I showed them, whether it be to, to, so that they would think something's cool or whatever, 
I absolutely was reckless so many times and put my kids in danger. I tempted them on so many levels to sin. And I had gone, I've had to go to each of them over the years with tears and say, I am sorry for the way that I did this or said this or parented in those days. Like it kills me to think about. It kills me to think about. I know that I've done this. I know um, that, I'm, that I'm guilty. And so, and so it's, it's easy for me to see how I've caused others or little ones to stumble in my past. And when I do, it's easy for me to think, this has got to be the unpardonable sin. This one hurts me a lot. And when I look at the strength of the way that God's talking about it, I'm like, oh, this is surely the one that Jesus didn't die for. Like, this is the one that he can never forgive me of, you know? And I do this thing, Satan takes me for a loop on this, this whole trail, you know what I mean? I feel like I can't be forgiven of this, um, and that he did not pay for this one. And the reason that I think in such ways is because of how strongly it's communicated here that sin, um, especially this kind of sin, is to God, right? And, and, uh, and, and he is just to punish it harshly. So much so that I can't comprehend that he would ever allow me to escape the consequence of it. Mostly due to what he says in verses 8 and 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life uh, crippled or lame than with two hands, two feet, and thrown into eternal fire. Nine also. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better you to en- for you to enter uh, life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into uh, hellfire. If you are one of those ones that thinks that Jesus never said anything offensive or violent or disturbing or alarming, like think again. Right? It's funny to me, um, they're, they're, speaking of parents, I, there's always these parents that were like, uh, don't let your kids see this scary thing or this scary thing. It's like, don't let them read your Bible, okay? Uh, because like some of the most disturbing, violent, crazy stuff uh, we find right here. Uh, Jesus said uh, a lot of it. Um, and much of what Jesus said, he said to absolutely produce shock and awe in the listener. Like, that's actually his intention. Like, he could have said the things that he said and recorded and preserved a hundred other ways than how he said them. But he didn't. He said them exactly how he wanted them to be said and exactly how he wanted you and I to feel them and have to deal with them when they hit our ears, right? Now, what's really weird to me is that I walked in here this morning and I didn't see any of you walking around without limbs or eyes that you've cut off or taken out due to sin in your life. Like, what's the deal? Right? Like, and, and, and so, like, what that tells me is that either you guys don't think that you have any sin, or you don't really believe that Jesus means this. It's one or the other. Most of us, as Christians, have not resorted to dismemberment after reading this text, due to this thing in language called hyperbole. Hyperbole. At least we're hoping that this is hyperbole. <laughs> we're, count, we're counting on this. We're counting on this being hyperbole. One of the characteristics in language that tips us off to interpreting something hyperbolically is the extreme ridiculousness of that which is being said or suggested. In other words, when what's being said and the way that it's being said is so radical and so extreme, we conclude they can't really mean that. They don't really mean that. 
And such is what we do with various sayings of Jesus like this one right here. Like this one right here. There is no way Jesus could, could truly be advocating for that which he's saying. That would be absurd, right? Which I tend to agree with. Unless, you're like, really? You're going to go there? Kind of. Unless sin is really this bad before a holy God who watches. Unless the punishment for sin, which is hell, is really this bad for the one who may find themselves ending up there. The problem with simply dismissing what Jesus is saying here as ridiculous only, only, is that we may be tempted to play down and dismiss the seriousness of that which Jesus wants us to get. That being that sin is far worse than we think it is. Sin is far worse than we think it is. And the wages of sin are far more brutal than we think they are. This is really what Jesus is saying here. So let me sum up my interpretation this way. Yes, this is hyperbole. Praise God. And yes, he really means it. We can talk later. Give me a call. The literality would be radical and ridiculous, and yet Jesus is dead serious when he says what he's saying, and he meant to saying that way, saying it that way. He meant to say it that way because sin is that bad, and hell is that bad. Uh, sin earns us eternal fire, he says here, or the hell of fire. I don't like either of them. I don't care how you say it. Uh, I'm not okay with either of those. I don't want to visit that place. You know what I'm saying? Um, which, by the way, if anyone struggles with the idea that Jesus or the Bible doesn't really talk about a literal, conscious, horrible, eternal place called hell, you're just simply not reading your Bible, honestly. I know that this is a new craze with all the deconstruction going on and, and the removing of things that offend us and make us comfortable in Christianity and in the Scriptures. This is one of them. The first one to go, oftentimes, is hell. Oh, no, that's hyperbole. That's not real. It's just an allegory for something else. Uh, it's not. Uh, no one talked about it more in a real sense than Jesus did. I'm not going to say, you guys have probably always heard this, uh, this isn't true, uh, that Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. That's not a true statement. Uh, the kingdom of the kingdom, anything kingdom is all heaven. Uh, he talked way more about that than anything else. However, he talked more about hell than any other author, writer in our Bibles. Okay? Like it was a theme. And he even like gave, I, I think, um, uh, the, the most vivid depiction of its reality than anyone else in the Bible with uh, the rich man in Lazarus. And uh, I think some people try to make that a parable. It, I, don't think, I don't think it's a parable at all. Like, it's a reality. And, and we see there that hell is real. I don't like the idea of it either, people. But that doesn't mean it ain't true. You know what I mean? I used to be a chimney sweep. I used to climb roofs. I hate gravity, but I can't deny that it's real. Hell's the same way. I may not like it, but that's the point. I'm not supposed to, and neither are you. Uh, it's real. And Jesus assures us that it's real. And he's doing that again here. Now, let's be honest for a moment. How many of you read your Gospels, the words of Jesus, 
Like he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. You know, that thing you used to do when you were a kid and you picked a flower and then the petals went off, right? Because I think that it's easy for us to do. When you look at some of what he says and the way he goes back and forth on certain things, sometimes I don't know where I sit in any given moment with Jesus, right? Almost like, almost like the Gospels are bipolar, almost as if some of the theology that comes out of the Gospels and out of the discourses are, are bipolar. And I think that if we're not careful with how to read our Bibles and what it is that Jesus is doing and setting out to do, we, we can come up with a bad insurance policy, gospel-wise. I think some of us can walk around and be like, as long as I don't do this and this and this, those things are paid for on the cross, but if I do this and this and this, like, my, my policy doesn't cover that. Like, we can come up with some bad, like, gospel insurance policies, if we read Jesus, I mean, in one minute, we can see him say something like, like, come to me, all who are tired, weary, weighed down. Like, I don't care what you look like or what you've done, come to me, and I, I will give you rest. And then you can turn the page and be like, if you do something like this to a little one, like a millstone, it'd be better if a millstone went around your neck. And it could be like, well, which is it? Does he love me or does he love me not, right? And I think what we need to understand just like we've seen throughout um, all the previous verses, especially the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus is using law and gospel. And if we don't understand when Jesus is, is preaching law and gospel, if we don't part that out, we will be confused. Rightly so. Problem and solution. None of us will think that we need a solution if we don't first know what the problem is. And Jesus is making sure throughout his discourses, that we know that we are the problem, that sin in us is the problem. And so what he is doing when he's talking like this, like we don't stand a chance and we're all guilty and we're all condemned, he's doing exactly what he's meaning to do. He's killing us. He's killing you and I with the law so that we will reach for the gospel. This is what he does over and over and over again, and that's, that, that helps, hopefully, you understand that Jesus isn't bipolar, and he's not speaking about different insurance policies at the cross, right? It's all about you having nothing to come to him with and him having everything that you need, right? It's about creating a desperation that sends you to the cross at all costs, this is what he's doing here, and praise God that he does that, right? Um, we must understand that sin is serious enough, like we already mentioned, to warrant dismemberment in order to avoid it. But far beyond that, we must, under, we must understand that the cutting off of the extremities that would keep us from walking in or acting out those sins to temptation is not enough. It would not be enough. Due to what James says, listen to James 1, 13 through 15. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts nobody. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's the word that stinks right there. That's the killer. 
by his own desire. So then desire, when it has conceived, James goes on to say, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So based upon what James says here, where does sin start? Right? Where does it begin? Where does it originate? Does your desire for sin begin with your arm? Does it begin with your eye? It begins in a place that's much harder for you and I to cut off or cut out. In fact, we couldn't live without it. But what James is saying is that we actually need heart surgery. We have a heart problem. You don't have a limb problem. You have a heart problem. This is what we're really talking about, and this is why dismemberment would not literally make any sense. It wouldn't help us because the problem goes much deeper, right? And so uh, it's easy, again, for us to read Jesus in a way that makes it sound like gospel is conditional upon what we do, but the fact is that he, again, is going to the source. He's going to the source still to let us know that we are far worse than we think we are. This isn't about behavior modification. I don't know how many Christians cannot understand this. Christianity is not about how well you clean up. It is about the, the reality that only he is capable of cleaning us up in the areas that we need it the most. Only Jesus can do heart surgery. You and I cannot. Only Jesus can bathe and cleanse a heart. You and I cannot. And that's exactly what we need. The bottom line is that if we're not taking the full picture into consideration here of what Jesus would end up doing to remedy that sin, which is so grievous and great at the cross, the gospel, we can and will walk away with a view that he didn't die for that. And so we're undoubtedly disqualified from his forgiveness. I praise God for chapter 7. I want you to hold on to that. Chapter 27. Did I say 7? 27. Sorry. We don't want to go backwards. We want to go forward. Chapter 27, right? Because once we get to chapter 27, what we find is that Jesus nailed that thing that you don't think you can be forgiven for, to a cross. All of it. There is no ceiling on the cross of Christ. There's a lot of people that like to sit around, including ourselves, and go, yep, he died for that thing. Nope, he didn't die for that thing. Yep, he can die for that person. He's definitely not dying for that person. There is no ceiling at the cross of Christ. Praise God. All right. What are we doing? Uh... What Jesus is doing is he's still showing, teaching, proclaiming a bleak reality of our current state um, in sin apart from the gospel in which to drive us to the gospel. So I want you to know this. The gospel does not say, he loves me, he loves me not. The law does. The gospel says he loves me. He loves me. All right, well, that's all fine and good, but is there any practical application that can be extracted from this? Are you, do you want it? Do you want the practical application from this text? There's a principle spoken here that can be applied and benefited from for us as Christians today, and it is this. Radical sin requires radical measures to eliminate it. We good? Radical sin in our lives requires radical, radical measures 
for us to eliminate it. Extreme sin requires extreme measures to conquer it. First and foremost, if we have something in our lives that is overwhelming us, we must go to the one who can overwhelm it. That is God. And he is on our side. If we have something in our lives that is bullying us, we must go to its bully. And I say that with a big B and in the best way. We must go to God to handle business. God must be sought first and foremost. We do not play around. We do not mess with superficial avenues. We don't look for secret doors or quiet ways to clean ourselves up, right? We confess openly, quickly, often to him. Not Calvin, Luther once said, right, Jordan? (laughs) I love you. All of the Christian life is one of repentance. We good? Good. We have this little thing going on because he's a Lutheran. And uh, I I like to credit Calvin for everything. And so we got this little like back and forth. It's all these, you know, they're both great. Go read them. They're good stuff. All right. We must confess openly, often to him. Not for his sake. Not for his sake, but for yours. He already knows what's going on in your life. He already knows what you're in bondage to. He already knows what you're struggling with. He already knows what you would need to be delivered from. He sees it all long before you ever admit to any of it. You need to go to him for your sake. Because what happens with our sin is we're really good at building walls. We do it all the time. Obstacles. You ever heard people go like, God feels so far away. I get it. I get what's being communicated. But you know what? He's not. He doesn't move. He never goes anywhere. He's right where he always is. He can be found where he's always been found. It's you that has built this thing between you and him to where you can't see him anymore. You can only see this thing. And so we need to tear walls down. We do that through admittance and confession, often in our lives. That's where it all starts, first and foremost. We need to treat sin like we treat cancer. It's so bad, what do we do when we find out we have it? We cut it off. We we even go through whatever treatments and whatever lengths we need to go through to cut it off and try to get it all. This is the same thing that we do with sin in our lives, regardless of what kind of extreme treatment it may require. So we tear down these walls that, um, that, we, that our sin has put up between us and God so that we can see him again, so that we can walk with him again, so that we can hear from him again. Um, I'm going to give you a little lesson. This is free. Counseling. Um, we do a lot of counseling as pastors. Um, we're not, we haven't been to school. We don't, you know, we're not therapists or whatever. Uh, we do biblical counseling. But I have found in my years of counseling some pretty gnarly situations and scenarios that it always comes down to three things. There are three questions that need to be asked. And I don't care who it is or what's going on. What's the problem? What's the solution? Are you willing to do it? I promise you that all effective counseling comes back to those three platforms. What's the problem? What's the solution? Are you willing to do it? I have seen some serious extreme examples of people 
that have been in strongholds, that have tried everything to get victory over those strongholds and can't. I have seen people in my Christian life at different times resort to things. I saw a guy one time give himself a tattoo on the inside of his thigh that did not look that way, but looked this way so that he could see it. And it said, the Lord's. Now, I don't think that's a great, you guys are all looking at me like, really? We should go do this? No, don't, don't go do that. I do think that's extreme. And somehow it helped. I've seen people get rid of phones, and I know that you can't get rid of phones. I mean, come on, David, like it's 2023. You have to have a phone to live. No, you don't. No, you don't. Nor do you need a computer. I've seen a lot of people recently go back to those folders, those little baked potato phones. I used to have one uh, because they were indestructible. Like you could fold it up and it just had this hard like case and you could throw it up a wall against a wall or whatever. And like, it was fine. Like the thing just kept on going. I wish I had it sometimes. Like I've seen, those are popular again. Like there's a lot of people going back to those things. I have seen people pull a geographic, just straight up move their job, their family, everything that they have is where they were. And they knew that they were never, ever going to get over the top of and have victory over this thing, whatever it is, unless they just straight up left and went somewhere else. That's pretty radical. That's pretty extreme, right? Like there are things that we can do if sin is bad enough and we know it and we want that relationship back that we rightly should have with our Father to cut it off. There's so much that we can do to break free from this stuff, right? So we need to be willing to do whatever needs to be done because radical sin requires taking radical measures, uh, all the while never forgetting that the cross is your motivator, not hell. So now I'm going to go back on what I started with. Hell has its place, and the fear of hell has its place. But if you belong to Christ, if you have been born again, resurrected with the Spirit of God living in you, a new creation, your motivator is no longer hell. It's the cross. When we fall, when we sin, when we fall short, we go there. Not there, because he is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful. For those who are in Christ, Romans 8, there is now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is there temptation? Yes. Is there still sin? Yes. Is there hell? No. No. It's gone. For Jesus has beat it once for all. All right. Uh, there's this, this thing is so stupid. I'm going to read it. The other night there was this. There's my phone. Hey, check it out. Uh, let's go to the phone here. This came down like a thread the other night when I was looking at the sermon, putting it together, and I thought, this is so dumb. But at the same time, like, it was exactly what I was looking at right here um, in this portion of the, let me see if I can find it. And it, what it is, is it's a receipt. You're not going to be able to see it. It's uh, someone did this thing that, that looks like a receipt, like a receipt that you would get after you were done at a restaurant and everything would be laid out of what you, you know, ate or a receipt at the grocery store, at the checkout stand. That's what it is. But at the top, it says, Jesus paid it all. You know, and then it says uh, you've you've got the the itemized list, right? And so you've got sin, uh, and it says paid, shame paid, pain paid, past mistakes paid, rejection paid, loneliness paid, slavery to sin paid, spiritual death paid, amount due nothing, change nothing, 
subtotal nothing, grand total nothing, right? And then at the bottom, instead of saying like, thanks for coming, have a nice day, you know, it says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what we're talking about. If you are in Christ, you get a new heart. And it's not because you're awesome and you know how to provide yourself with one and you cleaned up really good. It's because he's awesome and he gave you his. This is the whole reason that he came. Bottom line for us who are in Christ We read this section of scripture not as condemned, not as condemnation, but possibility for new and better things. New and better things. Here's the bottom line. Jesus was cut off so that you and I wouldn't have to cut anything off. Jesus was cut off so that we wouldn't have to dismember ourselves. Praise God for that. He was dismembered so that we wouldn't be. He was punished so that we would not be. And so late, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for your one-time, ultimate, fully sufficient and faithful redemptive work on our behalf. Thank you that you did the heavy lifting so that we would not have to. Thank you that you were cut off willingly from the Father so that we would not have to be. Thank you that we are new. We are saved. We are yours today and forever. In your name, amen.